0: morning so have you ever gotten a phone call you didn't expect a call that in an instant caused you to change your focus from whatever it was you were doing to whatever it was that the phone call was about or have you ever gotten a phone call that in an instant caused you to reconsider things it caused you to reconsider your plans or to reconsider your priorities, reconsider what was important to you, and perhaps even reconsider what you believe to be true. Have you ever gotten a phone call from the airline saying your flight's been canceled? Or a call from the school to tell you that your child is struggling? Or from the doctor to tell you that the test results really aren't so good? or a call to tell you that you didn't get the promotion that you expected, or that your job has been eliminated. Have you ever gotten a call telling you that you didn't get into your first choice school, or a call that the loan didn't come through, or that your proposal was rejected? Have you ever gotten a call from a friend telling you that they've been having an affair and are getting a divorce? Or a call from your spouse telling you that they want a divorce? Or you've ever gotten a call telling you there's been an accident? How do we respond when the world that we thought we understood suddenly changes? How do we respond when we find ourselves dealing with disappointment and uncertainty? How do we respond when we find ourselves in the middle of a situation we didn't expect or in the middle of a trial that we really don't want to be dealing with? We need to stop and think about how we're going to respond to calls like this because let's face it, life doesn't always work out the way we planned, does it? So how do we respond? Do we ask questions and get angry? Do we despair and become despondent? Do we shake our fists and scream? Do we lose hope? Or do we continue to trust and praise God? At some point, we're all going to get calls like that. And sometimes we're going to get lots of them in a row. So how do we respond to those calls? How do we react when the waves of life come crashing over us, beating us down? I think what we find is that how we respond to those unexpected calls is largely based on what the source of our certainty and our hope really is. About halfway through the Bible, you find the book of Psalms, and the Psalms are a book of poetry and song. In cultures like ancient Israel, when reading and writing were not common skills and books were not readily available, the culture used songs and poems to teach because the cadence of them made them easier to remember. And about halfway through the book of Psalms, we find Psalm 71. And Psalm 71 is the poem of a man who is well acquainted with hardship and trouble. And it provides a great framework for us to consider how do we respond when we find ourselves in the middle of uncertainty. Because we need to think about how we're going to respond when we get the call. Because life doesn't always work out the way we planned it to. So let's take a look at Psalm 71 together this morning. So there are two primary schools of thought about who the author is of Psalm 71. Most commentators believe it was King David. And that he wrote this psalm at the time when his son Absalom had staged a military coup trying to take over the kingdom from him. And I don't know about you, but if my son was staging a military coup against me, that would be a pretty bad day. (laughs) The other school of thought is that the psalm was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, a man so familiar with pain and hardship that in another book of the Bible, he writes this, I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Cursed be the day I was born. Wow. That's pretty rough too. So regardless of which of these men actually wrote Psalm 71 and what the actual trial was that they were facing as they wrote it, what we know is that it was written by someone who was well acquainted with hardship and trial. And there's a lot that we can learn from how they responded to their unexpected circumstances and disappointments. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles or navigate on your devices to Psalm 71 because I'd like us to read through the Psalm together today. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew in front of you. In those Bibles, you'll find Psalm 71 on page 573. I'm going to be reading from the New International or the NIV version of the Bible. So I encourage you to follow along as I read. I'm going to begin by reading the first 14 verses of Psalm 71. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth, I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him, for no one will rescue him. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. And so the first thing that we see is not only does the psalmist have a deep understanding of hardship, but he has a deep understanding of God. He begins in verses 1 to 4 with a cry for help but it's a cry that's based in a complete confidence of who God is and what God is capable of doing on his behalf. His response to his uncertain situation is to turn to the certainty that can only be found in God. When the storms of life come crashing in on him, his response is to run straight to God, and that can be our response as well. And then in verses 5 to 8, we see why he runs to God. He runs to God because of his previous experience with God. He has confidence to run to him now because as he looks back over his life, he sees time and time again when God has been faithful to him during other times of struggle. The author does not find his confidence in himself. He doesn't get his confidence from his circumstances. He doesn't get his confidence from his own resources or his own capabilities. He doesn't find his confidence in his job, in his possessions, in his health, or in his family. He finds his confidence in God. And his confidence in God begins with an intellectual recitation of things that are true about God. His confidence in God is based on a deep knowledge of God's character. And he writes, I know that God is faithful. I know that God is righteous. I know that God is strong. I know that God is sovereign. And I know that God is my savior. And he says, because I know that, when the storms of life come crashing in, I can run straight to God. And we too can maintain our confidence when the storms of life come crashing in. We can maintain our confidence when we get the unexpected calls if our hope and our certainty is found in God when my older son was born, he spent almost five months in the hospital. And it was an uncertain five months with a lot of unexpected phone calls. And I remember a conversation one weekend I had with the parents of another baby who was in the NICU with my son. And during the course of our conversation, talking about our kids and all the issues they were having and all the struggles, they looked at me and they said, how do you still Have faith. And at the time, the only answer I had, the only thing I was holding on to, was the fact that God was still God. I still had faith because God is faithful. I still had faith because God is righteous. I still had faith because God is strong even though I wasn't. I still had faith because God is sovereign. And I still had faith because Christ is my Savior. And I would just keep reminding myself of those truths over and over and over again, developing a habit of trust in who God is in letting my hope rise out of that trust. As the old hymn so beautifully says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust this sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. And every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. And what we see is that the author's confidence is growing as the psalm progresses. It begins with this recitation of intellectual knowledge because sometimes we just have to be reminded about what is true. But then as he reminds himself about what is true about God, his heart begins to praise. He transitions from an intellectual response To a heartfelt response. And as he focuses more and more on God, the problems, his circumstances begin to fade into the background. As he focuses more on God, his confidence grows and his praise expands. As he develops the habits of trust, hope and praise, they come easier and easier, and the problems seem to get smaller and smaller, even though nothing has actually changed. It's like a student learning a new instrument, practicing scales and fingerings over and over, gaining confidence as they develop the muscle memory that they need, and eventually, what was once hard becomes natural. And here's the thing, all good musicians, all professional musicians still practice their scales every day because we need to develop and maintain the muscle memory. And like the author does, we need to develop our habits of trust, hope, and praise we need to practice them every day. Whether we're five or 95, we need to practice our muscle memory so that what was once hard can become easy. And then what we see is that in the midst of the trial in verses nine to 13, the psalmist asks God to act. There's nothing wrong with asking God to act and change our circumstances. But he doesn't wait for God to act to begin praising. He praises God because he is God. He praises because God does not change even if our circumstances have changed. If we want to respond with confidence and hope when the unexpected calls come, we need to focus on what is true. We need to focus on the truth about who God is, the truth about who we are, the truth about God's promises, and the truth about the fallen world that we live in. Because when we understand those four truths and keep them in balance with each other, we have a far better opportunity to understand the circumstances that we find ourselves within. Where do we find hope when the unexpected call comes? Where do we find hope in the midst of circumstances and trials that we didn't anticipate? We find hope in a true understanding of who God is, in a true understanding of who we are, in a true understanding of what his promises really are, and in a true understanding of the fallen world that we live within. God has made promises. And God does have a plan to fulfill his promises. But his plan to fulfill his promises rarely works the way we expect it to. And that can be hard. It can be hard for us to understand. And it can be hard for us to deal with. But the author can continues in verse 14. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. Though I know not how to relate them all. Our ability or our inability to understand what's going on in the world around us does not have any bearing on God's involvement in the world around us or his sovereignty over the world around us. Why would God allow fill in the blank to happen? Sometimes the answer is just, I don't know. But just because we don't understand something doesn't mean God doesn't understand it. Our inability to understand something is just that. It's our inability. And our inability has no bearing on God's ability. Because we really don't want to shrink God into a box that we can understand. Because if we did, he'd be a very small God indeed. Because I don't understand very much. What we need is a bigger and bigger view of God. Because when our view of God gets bigger our faith grows. The bigger our view of God and the deeper our understanding of who God is, the more our hope will grow, the more we will become unshakable because our hope rises out of our faith. If we want to respond with confidence and hope when the unexpected calls come, when the waves of life come crashing over us, then we need to expand and deepen our understanding of who God is and stay focused on what is true about him. God is faithful. God is righteous. God is strong. God is sovereign. And Christ is our Savior we need to constantly remind ourselves about what is true. The truth about God, the truth about ourselves, the truth about his promises, and the truth about the fallen world that we live in. If we want to respond with confidence and hope, then we must acknowledge our limitations and recognize that our God has no limitations because our God is limitless. There's a little four-letter phrase, or four-word phrase, excuse me, that I'm pretty sure all of our parents said to us when we were growing up. Some of us heard it more often than others, and most of us vowed that when we became parents, we would never use this phrase with our children. But most of us have, haven't we? When our children ask, why do I have to do it? The answer is, there, you guys are so good. <laughs> and our parents said it to us because there were things that they understood that we didn't understand. And we say it because there are things we understand that our kids don't understand. We say it because there's a time and a place for questions, discussions, debates, and answers. But there's also a time and a place when they need them to, to do it just because we said so, because we understand something that they don't understand. And implicit in that statement, because I said so, is another statement. Because I need you to trust me, even though you don't understand. I need you to trust me in trust That I do. Trust me because I understand and I have your best interests in mind. And that is exactly what God wants us to do. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust him because he understands more than we ever possibly could understand. And he wants us to trust him because he has our best interests in mind. As our view of God gets bigger, our hope grows stronger, our confidence becomes unshakable, and our praise grows louder, and our purpose becomes much clearer. Verses 16 to 18, the psalmist continues, I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Why does the author want to be saved from his most recent trials? Not for himself. Not for his own comfort. He wants to be saved so he can declare God's righteousness and God's greatness to the next generation and to the generation after that. He recognizes that he has not yet completed his job of passing his faith onto those who will follow him. This is his purpose, and that is his focus. That is why he wants to be saved. And that is our purpose too, and that needs to be our focus. We don't exist as a church just to keep ourselves going. We exist to declare God to the next generation and to the generation after that. We exist to declare his power and his mighty acts. We are here today in this place, gathered together as Bethlehem Church in this building because the generations who came before us took that purpose seriously. And they never lost focus on it. As we look back at the 121 year history of this church, we can find example after example of the generations that came before us making hard and difficult and selfless, costly decisions in order to declare God's power to the next generation. In his mighty acts to all who were to come. In 1931, they changed their services from Swedish to English, a decision not about themselves, but a decision so they could declare his power to all who were to come. In 1962, they moved the entire church from downtown Dover to this site, a decision not about themselves, but a decision made so that they could declare his power to all who were to come. I'm standing here today because my mom and my grandfather declared God to me from the time I was small. I'm standing here today because people from this congregation, some of you, declared God to me when I was a child in Sunday school and Friday night clubs. I'm standing here today because people from this congregation, some of you, declared God to me when I was a young adult in men's ministry and in life groups. I'm standing here today because Pastor Barry saw something in me. And he encouraged me And he mentored me. And he gave me the opportunity and the freedom to develop it and to pursue it. Thank you. I'm standing here today. And we are gathered here today because those who came before us remained focused on declaring his power and his mighty acts to the next generation. And that is where our focus must remain. This is why we've been encouraging you to get involved in children's Sunday school and Friday night clubs and youth groups, life groups, and the other ministries that we have because we exist to declare God's power to the next generation and to all who are to come. The generations that have gone before us, they've set the example for us to follow. They've shown us what it means to selflessly make the hard decisions and the costly investments, to effectively declare God's power to the next generation. And they've shown us how to remain confident and hopeful despite changing cultural circumstances. And now, now it's our turn. Because we don't exist as a church to just keep ourselves going. We exist to engage a lost world with the timeless message of God. I'd like to close with these thoughts. I know this transition is not something anyone expected. It's an unexpected call no one saw coming, myself included. And I also know that it's a call some people are not particularly happy about. I understand that. But let's all remember, while it may have been unexpected for us, it was not unexpected for God. And so the question we each have left to answer is how are we going to respond as individuals and as a church? Personally, I am full of hope. I'm excited about the future of this church. I'm excited about what God wants to do in it and through it, and I'm excited to be part of it. But the question remains, how will we respond? Will we trust God because of who he is? Will we put our hope in him? Will we keep praising him and declaring his power to the next generation? because we're going to keep getting the unexpected calls. Jesus told us that. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. So we really shouldn't be that surprised, should we? But he also told us to take heart because he has overcome the world and he is our savior, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness I'd like you to all stand like us to sing this old hymn together to te- declare together as the body of believers known as Bethlehem Church, where our hope lies, in whom we trust, and why we can have confidence. Because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.